ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Friday the 15th of December. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Inspector General of Taxation is investigating the possible theft and hijacking of personal information that's allowed professional scammers to fraudulently claim millions of dollars in tax refunds. Karen Payne, the Inspector General of Taxation, is worried that criminals have been using stolen identities to infiltrate the tax system to change details and then illegally claim tax refunds belonging to other taxpayers. Her agency is investigating 130 complaints that are yet to be resolved by the Australian Taxation Office. Ms Payne says infiltration and fraud rattles confidence in the tax system. And she's speaking here with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. We're concerned about people who have had their identity compromised and then someone has used that information to go into their tax accounts and update their tax accounts in an unauthorised way and then start claiming refunds or amendments which result in refunds that they're not entitled to. So you mean people who might get a an unsolicited phone call or a text or maybe they see something on social media where they respond to that and they hand their details over? That's right. There have been instances where people have got text, please update your details, click this link. Don't do that. That's that's a scam. We're interested in people who've had emails intercepted or maybe just snail mail, letters, written pieces of correspondence from the tax office intercepted and the information in those letters has enabled somebody to go and commit a fraud. So when people have their personal data taken, sometimes tax returns could be submitted in their name and hijacked. Correct. What I'm really interested in, though, is if that has happened, how has somebody then been able to infiltrate the tax systems and your personal tax accounts in order to create these unauthorised refunds? Because then the money is going off into bank systems you're unaware of and that are not in your name. So what's the tax office doing to ensure that their systems can't be infiltrated? We're having a briefing with them in the early new year to get a better understanding of that. But what we are wanting to do when we get that briefing from the tax office is go in there with real examples and real accounts of what the community is seeing so that we can test their explanation. So this would really rattle confidence in the tax office if their systems are being infiltrated, particularly if people think their details could be duplicated and they mightn't be getting the tax returns they're entitled to. Well, I don't know that it it rattles confidence in the tax office, but it does rattle confidence in the tax system. We've seen that tax debts over the years have increased. They're now at a level of about $50 billion. Well, how many of those tax debts have been created because people have fraudulently accessed people's personal details to claim refunds they're not entitled to? So how much money are we talking about that's gone missing? We don't know exactly how much money, but we have an idea that it's It's in the millions, not in the tens of thousands or even the hundreds of thousands. It's actually in the millions. And that's a significant sum of money that that warrants further investigation by our agency. So if all this money has gone missing because the tax system has been infiltrated, can we have confidence in, in the ATO? I think we should all have confidence that the ATO are there to protect the tax system. What I'm concerned about is whether the tax system itself and the way in which the checks and balances within that system are working so that this doesn't happen. 
The Inspector General of Taxation, Karen Payne, with Peter Ryan. And a spokesperson for the Australian Tax Office says it's working with the Inspector General and that the ATO has sophisticated processes across its systems to detect fraud. Around 15,000 properties in far north Queensland remain without power following Cyclone Jasper. The cleanup continues after the system crossed the coast north of Cairns late on Wednesday. It's been downgraded since to a tropical low, but it's still dumping huge volumes of rain. Murray Watt is the Minister for Emergency Management. He joins us now from Cairns. Torrential rain is still pocketing down, Minister, but from what you've been able to glean so far, what's the damage like and what does the Weather Bureau say about the danger? Is it over? Um, well, good morning, Sabra. Yeah, you're right. I spent yesterday in Cairns and the rain was coming down very heavily and that is certainly continuing really across a lot of Cape York uh, and far north Queensland. Uh, at the moment, the system has been downgraded to a tropical low, that, but that still means that there's a lot of rain coming down. Uh, it's it's very slowly moving across Cape York uh, and eventually will move towards the Northern Territory. Um, but flooding is certainly the main risk that we're keeping an eye on at the moment. Um, there's major flood warnings still in place for the Daintree and Mossburn rivers and moderate flood level uh, uh, ratings for a number of other river systems as well. I mean, the good news is that so far there hasn't been immense damage uh, in the way that people feared, uh, but these floods could be quite serious and we're really asking people to take serious precautions. Yeah, from my understanding, because it's so slow moving and it's dumping a lot of rain, that is um, unusual. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I mean, this is monsoonal rain for a tropical part of our country, but it is early in the season to be getting this amount of rain. Conditions had been very dry in far north Queensland in the lead up to this. So, uh, you know, the soil has been able to absorb this rain um, pretty well. Um, but the, just the sheer volume of rain that we've seen in some parts of far north Queensland would be difficult for anywhere to cope with. And that's why we're seeing those flood warnings in place now. This could be the first of many sort of extreme weather events this summer. Yesterday, the government uh, revealed that you'd put in place all the recommendations from the Royal Commission following the Black Summer fires. How well prepared is the nation now for events like this? I think we're as well prepared as we possibly could be, Sabra. And what I can certainly say is that we're a lot better prepared as a country than we were heading into Black Summer four years ago. Um, there's been a huge amount of work at both federal, state, territory and local government level and also amongst local communities to be really much more resilient for natural disasters than, than we were only a few years ago. Uh, at the federal level, things have significantly changed. We've now got one coordinated emergency management agency rather than responsibilities being split between different agencies. We've started building a national emergency management stockpile for the very first time. We've got the largest fleet of uh, firefighting aircraft that Australia's ever seen. And of course, the states and territories have been doing a power of work to be ready as well. I mean, having said all that, you can never prepare for everything. There's always going to be surprising events or events that are more intense than what you expect them to be. Uh, but I'm confident that we're, we're as well prepared as we possibly can be. Defence was absolutely crucial in those Black Summer bushfires. You recently released a discussion paper and sought public feedback on this idea of having an alternative disaster response team for emergencies. And the paper said that defence should be regarded as the force of last resort. When will those submissions be made public and when will you put forward the alternative? Yeah, so we've recently finished the consultation process uh, for this project and we expect to publish the submissions online in the new year. 
Um, what we know is it, there are two things that are really clear. Australia is going to be facing more and more serious natural disasters in the future due to climate change. And also the ADF is under, coming under increasing pressure to respond. So what we need to do is build alternatives at the federal level so that we can follow that recommendation from the Defence Strategic Review, which said that we need to see the ADF as a last resort rather than a first, first port of call. Um, we've made clear that we will always make the ADF available to states and territories when it's needed, but we do need to have some other options in place. And that's why, as I say, we've started building that national stockpile with things like temporary accommodation, water purification equipment, things that sit outside the ADF. And we're also funding an organisation called Disaster Relief Australia, which is a veteran-led volunteer organisation who can come in and do some of that recovery work that the ADF has played in the, in the past. Um, but there's been some good ideas come through that consultation process. Um, I'll be you know, considering them in the run-up to the budget next year, and uh, I would expect over the course of the year we'll have a bit more to say about that. All right. So when can we expect a sort of an outline of the plan ahead, You know, the force that you'll plan and what we need to do to achieve it? I'd certainly hope that we can start outlining that in the first half of next year. I mean, realistically, it will take a number of years to build up that alternative to the ADF at the federal level. And some of that will also involve supporting the states and territories to do more as well, because, of course, they will continue to have the primary responsibility around disaster management. But what we now know is that I think the Australian community does expect the federal government to play much more of a leadership role than we saw during Black Summer. And that's what we're really trying to do right now. Murray Watt, thanks for joining us this morning from Cairns. Thanks, Sabra. Murray Watt is the Minister for Emergency Management. <music> Rooftop solar is now three times more common than backyard pools in Australia, and it's capable of meeting 48% of underlying energy demand across the national energy market in the middle of a sunny day. That's one of the findings in the latest update on the national energy grid by the Australian Energy Market Operator, known as AEMO. It manages the energy market. It forecasts most coal-fired power plants will exit the system within the next 15 years, and that's faster than previously expected. But it also says that the renewables and transmission lines required for that change may not be ready in time. Daniel Westerman is the chief executive of AEMO. Daniel Westerman, that finding about rooftop solar panels on homes, what does that say about Australians' appetite for renewable energy? Well, I think it shows a strong appetite for renewable energy and a strong appetite for consumers to invest in their own, what we call consumer energy resources, so solar and increasingly batteries and electric vehicles that will plug into the grid. And what this report shows is that um, those consumer energy resources will form an important part of the future for Australia. So there are some really key findings from that report. As you said, our, our coal-fired power stations are, are getting old and they're retiring. And as you say, we expect about 90% of those coal-fired power stations to retire in the next decade. And what we know, both from this report and from previous reports, is that the lowest cost pathway for secure and reliable electricity is from renewable energy, be it grid scale or the smaller solar that you've mentioned, connected by transmission, supported with batteries and pumped hydro and backed up by gas-fired power generation. And the transition is already very much underway, as you've outlined, but there's still a big job ahead of us. It is a, a big job. 
Let's just dig into this a little bit more. The coal-fired plants are actually going to retire faster than what operators are actually flagging at the moment. As you mentioned there, the risks of this modernising the grid is that the new transmission lines won't be in ready in time, that extra renewable power won't be ready either. The scale required is massive. How much risk is there? Well, the scale required is huge, um, but the transition is underway. So, for example, 10 coal-fired power stations have closed in the last decade and renewable energy already accounts for about 40% of the energy supplied in the grid at the moment. But this plan, as you say, highlights the need for urgency in action. And to quantify that, it calls for triple the grid-scale renewable energy by 2030 and an increase of sevenfold by 2050. It calls for uh, almost four times what we call the firming capacity. So that's generation that can respond when you need it, um, including batteries and pumped hydro and, and gas generation. And four times the rooftop solar that we've spoken about and about 10,000 kilometres of that um, of new transmission by 2050. Around half of that delivered in the next decade and about half of that is, uh, is already underway. And the urgency is clear because if there are delays to this new infrastructure being built, it does put at risk reliability uh, and it does put at risk the price of energy that consumers pay. Strains are actually apparent today. New South Wales residents, for example, have been asked to reduce their electricity use to ensure that everyone has got the power they actually essentially need. Will Australians be increasingly asked to do this while the transformation takes place? Well, the risks um, that you saw in New South Wales uh, yesterday where it was a hot day, um, consumers wanted their air conditioning on, and these days result in periods of what we call very high demand on the energy system. And what we're seeing at the moment is that we just don't have quite enough generation and we don't have enough transmission to get it to the right places. If we had more investment in renewable energy and batteries in pumped hydro and flexible gas, then we wouldn't be quite as constrained and we wouldn't be risking reliability. And the transmission's just as required. So yesterday, uh, while New South Wales was obviously very hot and high demand, there was plenty of spare energy in Victoria. But the transmission that connects Victoria to New South Wales was clogged up. It was a traffic jam. They couldn't get electrons across the border. And, of course, more transmission would help unclog that congestion. When you hear people say what we need is uh, more gas or we need these coal plants staying open for longer or we need nuclear power, these are the answers to these problems. What do you think? Do you, as an operator who sees all the evidence, what do you think? Well, I think the story for Australia is actually very clear and it's um, increasingly consistent. And that is that our coal-fired power stations are old and they're closing down. And all the evidence that we have says that the lowest cost form of the replacement for that energy is renewable energy connected in with transmission supported by batteries and pumped hydro and backed up by gas power generation. And what we need to make sure is that new generation and that transmission is there before our coal-fired power stations close down or break down, because that's when we have risks to Australia. Daniel Westerman, thanks for talking to AM. Thank you, Sabra. And Daniel Westerman is the Chief Executive of AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator.
Christmas is not far away and many families will be busy making plans for celebrating together. For some, the festive season helps break the routine of constant hospital visits and a string of medical appointments to help kids with serious health problems. This year, there's a glimmer of hope for those with a serious form of childhood muscular dystrophy that slowly robs sufferers of a long and healthy life. Nick Grimm has the story. (laughs) Round and round the garden... Like a teddy bear. Like most kids his age, little Austin Williams loves a nursery rhyme. One step, two step, particularly under there. But unlike other three-year-olds, he can't use words to let his mum, Brooke Cerrone, know. <laughs> Mama. Austin is non-verbal. He has autism, other serious medical conditions and has been diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which will cause progressive loss of muscle function as he grows up. So with Austin, most children aren't diagnosed before symptoms start to show and symptoms start to show from about five onwards. So because he had prior medical conditions, a blood test was done when he was one that indicated he had muscular dystrophy. And for his mother, there's some comfort to be taken from the fact Austin has no understanding of what life has in store for him. So usually people with Duchenne's are completely aware of what's going on, whereas in Austin's case, he's a little bit luckier. So with Duchenne's, eventually his muscles start to break down and from 10 years old onwards, he most likely will end up in a wheelchair but we'll need an electric wheelchair because we want to preserve the muscles in the hands for as long as we can. So Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a very severe muscle wasting condition that affects um, one in 5,000 boys. Dr Ian Woodcock is a paediatric neurologist at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. And it causes them to be born healthy at, uh, when, when they're when they first born, but they then develop muscle weakness, which deteriorates over time and unfortunately does shorten their life and they tend to, they're expected to, to pass, sadly pass away in their late 20s. And while Duchenne remains a difficult condition for doctors to treat, there is some hope with new drugs emerging that could slow its progression. The Murdoch Institute is currently part of an international trial funded by a pharmaceutical company that could offer a new therapy for more advanced sufferers. And it's for boys who are with Duchenne muscular dystrophy who are sadly no longer able to walk. These particular boys are normally excluded from clinical trials because often clinical trials from big pharma companies focus on boys who are still able to walk. So this is a great opportunity for them to be involved in clinical trials and to have the same hope that is provided to the younger boys. Go one more time. This will be you into the market. And while Austin's young age means he won't qualify for this trial, his mum remains hopeful that others will help him stay ahead of his condition. And Brooke Cerrone wants to see him one day attend a holiday camp for kids facing the same kind of challenges he does. So that my son has some happy moments that I know that I can look back and go, I did everything I possibly could for him in his short life. And like most other parents, you'd do anything to help your son. Yeah. Um, At the moment, I have been struggling with the fact of he just loves to run and climb. And I know that in a few years, his body won't allow him to do that. And I think I just want to savour every moment of him running and 
just having that independence of walking before it's gone and it's too late. <laughs> All the way home. That's three-year-old Austin and his mum, Brooke Cerrone. Nick Grimm with that report, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Are you an AI boomer or doomer? Do you think artificial intelligence will make the world a better place? Or are you worried it could destroy our way of life? Today, Professor Toby Walsh, the Chief Scientist at UNSW's AI Institute, on the recent fight over AI in Silicon Valley and the latest innovations we need to know about. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.